This is Back Talk by Successful Black Parenting Magazine, the most listened to podcast for parents by parents. Hey guys, thank you for listening to Back Talk by Successful Black Parenting Magazine. You can help us to level up by supporting this podcast. All you have to do is go to anchor.fm and search for Back Talk by Successful Black Parenting and then hit the button that actually says support this podcast. I want you to go there now. Go, 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 go. And thank you ahead of time. Hey there, everyone, and thank you for listening to Back Talk by Successful Black Parenting Magazine, the podcast talk show for parents. I'm Janice Robinson Celeste, your host and publisher of Successful Black Parenting Magazine. Know that our hashtag for this show is hashtag Back Talk. That way people can find it. I can find your comments later and share them with the world. Now, if you go to our Facebook page while we're live um, for Successful Black Parenting and share the link with your followers, do that right now. So to let people know that you're joining us live, you can comment on Facebook right now and I will post the best comments live on air, but do it early because it takes a while for it to get to me backstage here. So make sure you post your comments. If you have anything to say, questions or whatever, put them down now, start thinking about them. My guest today is Dr. April Lisbon. She is an autism coach, a school psychologist who is also raising a child that is autistic and dyslexic. Welcome, Dr. Lisbon. Thank you so much for having me on the air today. Oh, good. And I'm glad you joined us. This is such an important topic, and a lot of parents um, are experiencing the same types of things. They have children who are affected by autism or some sort of special needs, and I I really want to talk about that. It's it's dear to my heart because I had a special needs brother um, who was uh, challenged from birth because he was um, born what they call the blue baby. He didn't get enough oxygen to his brain, and he had brain damage. And, you know, he um, he lived for a very long time. He's, he was 45 years old before he passed from complications from kidney disorder. But, um, you know, I was raised with him and protected him all my life. And, and so any topics with special needs children it is very, very dear to my heart. Nice. Um, can you tell our audience a little bit about your background? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a 20 year veteran public education K through 12 school psychologist by trade. Um, I have worked in both urban and suburban school districts throughout my tenure. Um, Primarily, I've worked with children from ages 3 through 22, children with um, significant developmental disabilities, as well as children with learning disabilities, autism, emotional um, disturbances, and things of that nature. Um, So a lot of my training had prepared me, I thought, you know, to parent a child with special needs, but it did not. (laughs) Like I tell people, you know, you can't do the one size fit all approach. And even with all of the training and the theory in the background, it did not prepare me to not only have one, but two children um, for a period of time with um, developmental disabilities when they were younger. Oh, wow. Yes. So both of my children had significant communication delays when they were younger and they're about 33 months apart from each other. So that was very taxing and trying to have two children with developmental disabilities. However, it was my first son, my oldest one, who was actually diagnosed with um, being on the autism spectrum, which 
really created a lot of my advocacy for children with special needs, as well as opened up my eyes to what autism is really all about, especially within um, the black and brown communities. So that was a shift from what my training in educational opportunities had exposed me to throughout the years. Great. I was going to ask you, which came first? Did you become a uh, psychologist first or did your, do you have your children first with um, disabilities? What happened? No, actually, I was a school psychologist prior to having children. So ah. I was a career person um, at first. And then in my 30s was when I had my first child. So I was already five years into my profession before I actually had my first child. So I had the training, you know, I had the opportunities. I worked with the families. I saw the tears. And for me, I was like, oh, I don't know if I could ever do this journey. And then their journey became my journey, which was which was hard. It was wow. really, really hard trying to create balance um, between what I was experiencing at home and what I was experiencing on, in the workplace. Well, it definitely takes a special person to be able to raise children with with special needs because it takes a lot out of you. And we're going to talk about the support needed and, um, you know, just ha- right, having a tribe around you uh, later on, because I, I know watching my own mother do it. I was like, I don't know how she does it. I did not. And, and you know, he, my brother lived with us um, for all, most, almost all of his life. He had a few times he was away for summer camp or something like that for respite, but he was there. And she did it this into her late 70s. So I don't, you know, it's uh, and he needed care. He could not live alone. So that's different from, you know, being on autism spectrum. But he really uh, had some special needs. So even though we're talking about autism, you know, we're kind of reaching out talking about special needs children, too. Now, this is a hot button topic um, because there's new research that says that black children are not being identified with special needs enough. And there are others say that um, black children are being misdiagnosed due to lack of cultural understanding. Is any of this true? And what should parents believe? Um, I will tell you, just working in a profession and having the exposure that I've seen, I would say that our children are being overdiagnosed when it comes to emotional disabilities and intellectual disabilities. And what I mean by that, and I know my colleagues are not going to care about this statement, and I really don't care. The fact of the matter is a lot of our cognitive measures are culturally biased towards black and brown children. And so a lot of the historical assessments like your Wexters and your Stanford Binet, which are the go-to for a lot of school psychologists, were actually designed to assess Army personnel as beta testers to see who would be officers versus who would be placed out into the field. So, of course, you know, the lower scoring individuals would be placed out into the fields, which primarily were minorities because they did not have the cultural and educational exposure as their same white counterparts. So we are literally utilizing assessments that were designed for the military to assess our children for special needs, for special education services to date. And so, so more times than not, some of those questions have less to do with actual knowledge and more so to do with have I had the opportunity and the learning experiences to answer those questions. So um, when I, I'm very cognizant about how I look at the numbers and how I look at the scores for our children, because when I go through the actual protocols or just the information from the school psychologist, sometimes I question, did this child really understand me? Did you break it down to the point where they could understand it based on their culture and their language? Or is this something because they didn't have the exposure necessary or the opportunities to learn about it? Is that why their scores are so low? So I can see that. 
a lot. So what, what types of um, challenges or disabilities are you referring to exactly when, that, are, that might be misdiagnosed? Um, for us, more so than anything, the ADHD diagnoses, um, mm-hmm. that's a big one within our, in our community because from, and this is what I've learned through other scholars and just researching it myself, is that when it comes to African and, and um, Latinx cultures, we have a lot of things related to like drumming and dancing and just the beats. And it's a part of who we are culturally. You know, we hear music at home. And so sometimes for our kids, they're still hearing the rhythms in their heads from the night before, or from the day before. And when they get into the classroom setting, if you have a teacher who is, as I call it, a talk at you teacher who wants all the kids to sit in the straight line, that doesn't work for all kids, you know? And more times than not, what they're thinking is ADHD is just truly a child who, as I call it, is just give, it's just gifted a rhythm. You know, and so we have, we are constantly overdiagnosing our children with ADHD. Another one where we are not doing the best when it comes to um, identifying our children or overdiagnosing them, as I said, is those children with emotional disabilities. One of the things that we do not take into consideration is the trauma that our kids experience. And it may not even be trauma within the home environment. It can be trauma you know, outside within a community where these kids are being exposed to um, domestic disputes in the streets. It could be because they're not getting enough sleep because the police are knocking on doors, you know, just different things of that nature. That then transcends to the children from home to school. And then all of a sudden, you know, the teachers ask them the question, well, they may be just excessively tired because of what has happened in their environment. So yes, they may, you know, snap off on you for a little bit, but it's not that they're trying to be rude or anything. It's just, you know, the stresses that they're experiencing. And then more times than not, those kids are identified as being emotionally disturbed. Um, one of the things that I do think that we're doing a better idea of is that of identify our children with learning disabilities, I think you know, more times than not, that has been underdiagnosed for our children as well. But from what I'm seeing with people doing better assessments, we are doing a better job of identifying our children with learning disabilities. The one, and I can speak to this as a parent, that you really see black and brown children, but more white children identified as that was with autism. Uh, Because traditionally, we are identifying a lot of kids who should be on the autism spectrum as as um, emotionally disturbed or have an intellectual disability. Wait, say that again. You're saying you're not seeing as many black children on the autism spectrum? No. Okay, so that's, no. you think that's being underdiagnosed? Yes, yes, okay. because people are constantly looking at the behaviors versus why the behaviors are occurring. So, mm-hmm. you, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things where some research that I saw another professor do um, indicated that by the time our, for example, our black boys are four, they are already criminalized as going to as being a part of the school to prison pipeline by the time they're in preschool. So if you have a four-year-old who's not a six-year-old and they're having behavioral issues, immediately you're thinking, oh my goodness, this child is either severely ADHD or emotionally disturbed. There's no in-between. And I'm seeing it right now um, with a couple of kindergarten students that I'm working with. Immediately, they're like, oh, they have to be emotionally disturbed. I'm like, no, these kids have been traumatized for years. And this is a manifestation of the trauma. Um, But like I said before, our children are really identified as being on the autism spectrum because more times than not, teachers are really looking at the behaviors, the, the output versus the underlying cause of the behaviors for the child. Oh, I see. Okay. So there's definitely a case by case basis per child. And um, it just, if it's 
regarding a black child, it should be looked at, I think, deeper than yes. just a normal spec, uh, you know, normal um, test or challenges yes. because you, you also, I, I don't know if do they look at what's going on at home usually, or do they just look at what's going on in the school? You know what? It really all depends on your school district. Mm-hmm. So, more, so more times than not, and how they see the role of what we call the related service providers. So in some school districts, the school social worker is required to do a social history to help, you know, in the process of an evaluation. But then there are other school districts where the school social worker is not required to do that social history, which is that in-depth what is happening in the home environment and what is happening in the community to see whether or not there's an alignment with what they're seeing in the school community. So when you don't have that social history, all you as a school psychologist can do is base it on what's happening within the school community. And that key background information then dictates and helps to determine whether or not a child is found eligible for special ed. And I have seen a lot of kids, you know, over many years where that social history has been critical in deciding whether or not this is a true emotional disability or whether or not this is a true learning disability or nothing at all, you know? So not having that critical background um, information does impact, you know, how we classify students for special ed. And I'm wondering how much of uh, bias is involved because I'm mean, the reason I'm asking because as African American people we kind of know what our children might be going through or maybe have a hint because we're going through it ourselves a lot of times um, and we see it and we follow it and and we just kind of keep up with what's going on in neighborhoods and news and and um, we might consider that where someone who's not might be a little more oblivious to it and just think that this is what you see right out front is what it is yes. and maybe that child is going through some psychological trauma because their child their friend got shot or you know something in addition to that um or i mean it could be anything i'm just right. putting scenarios out there but yeah. um and but we consider those things that what they might be going through at home not having you know food to eat or, mm-hmm. or whatever it may be um and, and i don't know how much is does bias play a role in any kind of anything i know tests are supposed to be non-biased etc but does it does it somehow seep in? You know, I, I think that's a case by case basis, based mm-hmm. on the teacher and um, their experience with working with children of different races. So I have seen some teachers who will do that deep dive because they've built the relationship with the parents. Mm-hmm. Um, they have been able to get past the barriers, and parents are more authentic and truthful with them, and will tell the you know will tell the teacher what's going on. And then sometimes there are some teachers who's, who are they're just very standoffish, and you know they don't want to hear what's going on. It's just one of those things where they're like, "This is a problem, child. This is a behavior. This child needs mm-hmm. to be tested for special ed." So it's just really all depends on the teacher and their willingness to actually engage a parent to engage parents in that conversation, those com- tough conversations. Well, here's the thing. See, I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist. I got to give you that disclaimer. Right. And I, also the teachers in the schools are not, even though we have some training, because I used to be a teacher yes. of what to look for. I've seen teachers um, ask for um, a child to be evaluated when I'm looking at this child that I've known for years and I'm like, no, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it could be two kids, a, a, a black, I'm thinking of a specific example right now, black mm-hmm. boy, white boy, white boy's charismatic. He's, um, you know, he goes from classroom all the time, bouncing from classroom, classroom. Hey, teacher, what's up? You're my favorite teacher, blah, blah, blah. Right. And then, the, but the black boy does it. He's annoying, gets written up. He's, they say he can't sit still. He must have something like ADHD. And mm-hmm. then they referred him. And I'm like, no. 
this this boy will grow up to be a man that will be a great salesperson. He will be amazing. These are skills that he has, but you're not seeing them through the same lens that I'm seeing them for some reason. But you see it with this other person. So that's why I thought, you know, you know, in this case, this is a mild case, but but it's by you know some bias was involved. Um, and now I'm not saying that. Also, I want to make sure I'm clear. I'm not saying that um, you know that our children don't fall on these spectrums to be diagnosed because they do, they yes. do. And um, like you said, there are a lot of times are being underdiagnosed for autism. So you know, it's case by case basis. Um, but yeah, so just keep in mind who's doing it. And I always tell the parents, always you know. Do, do your research, do your due diligence, find out, um, you know, what's going on, what they're trying to say. If you have any input to, to give, give your input. They're going to ask you for your input. Don't hold back. And uh, if you think it's something cultural, you know, bring that up too. Don't be afraid to talk about your culture. Yeah. But let me ask you, um, when a child is diagnosed at the school lev- level with special needs, what happens at what happens and and does this record follow them for the rest of their life like they have this in their record you know it's it's a case-by-case basis so by law we are required to evaluate a child every three years to determine if they will still qualify for special education services what that evaluation looks like is really based on how the school district sets it up so some school districts will require updated assessments every three years where there are some where there are other districts who will require uh, what we call a records review for the first cycle, first three years, and then a comprehensive assessment once again by the second cycle, which is year six. Some students, they will be found ineligible for services. Typically, you may see that towards like the middle school years if they were assessed when they were much younger. And then for other children, it will follow them all the way up until they graduate out of high school. For those students who, yeah, so for those students who do continue to have an IEP and graduated from from high school, they're then able to take that information, specifically the accommodations to college, to help them be successful at the collegiate level as well. Okay, yes, we had a case basis, yeah. Yeah, we had a statement from uh, a black male parent and educator who says he's seen variations from school to school within different districts too, and then we have um, a. I think what she means here, uh, if a mother has a mental disorder, this question is uh, like a bipolar disorder. Can her medication cause special needs issues in her child? I guess you mean when she's pregnant with a child? Is that a possibility or? Um, it can alter brain development mm-hmm. as a case by case basis. But sometimes certain medications can alter the brain development of the child, especially when, you know, when the brain is actually developing in utero. So for some kids, it can impact them. Not I, would, yeah. I would think that doctors would, would monitor something like that and make sure that it doesn't affect the fetus. Yeah. Um, if you want to follow up on that question, please do. I'd like to know more about what you were thinking on that one. Um, and also, when um, a child is diagnosed, what support is offered to the family? Um, oh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's kind of challenging. Um, that's based on the school district. So more times than not, when the child is found eligible for, through the school system, the support is primarily for the child. So whatever's in that child's individualized education plan, we do it at school. We try to encourage parents to follow up and review the goals and the objectives um, to help their child when it comes to homework. But as far as like outside community resources, once again, it's on a case-by-case basis. If parents don't ask for it, sometimes schools, districts don't provide it to them. 
You know, um, we typically, I know in my district, one of the things that we do is we do refer parents to our parent resource center where they do have access, you know, to better understanding their child's diagnosis, you know, determining what supports and services are out in the community, but it's up to the parents to go about and, and access that. All we can do is talk to parents and share with parents, but as far as like the following up and making sure that they actually do it, that's something we don't do it at the school district. And that's that's in a lot of school districts that I've participated in. This is a great question because if you don't know, you 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 don't know what these are, but the question is, can you explain IEP and 504 and suggest strategies for advocating for seeking appropriate diagnosis and provisions of services? Great question. Absolutely, because in addition to being a school psychologist, I used to be a 504 coordinator, so I can <laughs> tell you the difference. So um, a Section 504 basically is for general accommodations for individuals who may have some type of mental or physical impairment that impacts one major life activity. So for example, if a child has a diagnosis of ADHD, it may not impact them to the point where they require specialized instructions through special ed, but they may need some general accommodations in the classroom setting to assist with concentration or to assist with reading. So we create accommodations related to the ADHD to help the child be successful within a general education setting. Now, when a child has an individualized education plan or an IEP, that's where, you know, we've tried significant interventions within the classroom setting. And even with those interventions in place, the child failed to, what we call failed to respond to those interventions. So they need something a little bit more stronger, as I call it, in order to be successful within a general education setting. And that's where that IEP comes in if that child is found eligible for services. Now, as far as strategies for advocacy, as I tell people, I think the biggest thing that you have to know is that you are your child's voice. Um, If you know something that works for your child at home, speak up about it during those meetings, whether it's a 504 meeting or there's an IEP meeting, because what we're going about is based on what we've seen that may have worked for other students in the past. But you as a parent know your child better than we do at school. We know them for that 6.5, but you could tell us, you know what, for example, extra time won't work for my child because my child is is always on the move, always on the go. So giving them that extra moment may not help them on this particular assignment. But if you jot this down or you create this visual schedule for my child, then you will see my child be successful. We can write those accommodations on that 504 plan or that IEP. But one of the things that I want to strongly encourage parents is to make sure that you are giving voice and providing those strategies to help the team. It is a team decision. It's team goals. It's team accommodations. So you have to make sure that you're bringing something to the table as well. Awesome. I'm going to share this little viral story that we had happen that a lot of people don't know that we had something to do with. But um, there was this little boy, his mom contacted me because um, he was mostly nonverbal. And uh, he started singing that song, um, Old Town Road, Old Town Road. Yeah. And she asked me, she said, hey, can you share this? Because at first I was like, "Okay, okay, I'll get to it. And then I went and looked at it. I was like, oh, my God. And so we shared it and it went viral. And then I mean, it just it just kept taking off from there. And um, her son, Daniel, uh, that's how he started communicating through the Old Town Road. So you're right. Whatever works for them. And I mean, he even got to talk to like the singer and everything. So it's an Oz X. And um, it just went went off the ch- off the chain. Right. <laughs> it just did. And I'm so happy for them. Yeah, because. You know, this little boy needed that and his whole family like just got behind that whole song because of 
their you know brother and their, her son. Mm-hmm. So uh, you never know what's going to work for a child, but that worked, and it's, and she's using it in her her IEPs now. Awesome. So. Music and that and that's how you communicate to him. But just any last words of advice for parents because we're running out of time. If you have a question, put it up now because we're going to be running out of time real shortly. But any last words of advice for parents who might be in this situation, especially about building a tribe around you for support? Yeah, I think the biggest thing um, that you want to do. The first thing I'm going to tell parents is it's okay to be frustrated in this process. Just don't give up on it. That mm-hmm. just don't give up because. Raising a child with special needs, it there are a lot of highs and lows <laughs> that come in this process where you will question whether or not you have the ability to do this. Are you built for this? You are built for this. You can get through this. You just have to give yourself grace to fail in a process knowing that it's in your perfections that you create perfection for your child in the future. The second thing is ensure that when you are going to those meetings, ensure that you are bringing something to to the table. Oftentimes, I see parents come in there hoping for the school to provide the recommendations. As I tell my parents, regardless if it's a 504 meeting or an IEP, bring something to the table because there's something that you are doing at home that works that we can actually replicate at the school level. We need to know these things in order to make and produce the most robust IEP or 504 plan for your child. And the final thing is this, don't stop apologizing. Stop apologizing because you have a child with special needs. You don't have to apologize. If other people don't get it, that's their problem. Stop apologizing because your child may have behavioral outbursts. Um, They may swear because it's a part of their disability if they have Tourette's. That's who your child is. That is your normal. You don't have to apologize to other people for your child being who he or she is. Oh, that's perfect advice. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to Back Talk by Successful Black Parenting Magazine, the podcast talk show for parents. If you missed part of this show, no worries, because you can just wait a few minutes and click play for the replay of this podcast. Share it with anyone who needs to hear it. You know who they are. And let's get the word out. Our next episode will be on Friday, October 4th at 6 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time and 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And I will be interviewing Lindley Donnelly, who is a child digital safety expert at Securely. She will speak to parents on how you can keep your children safe in this digital age and how parents can address hard topics like cyberbullying and online predators with their kids. You know, we just had that incident where this 11-year-old boy stole his brother's car and drove 200 miles to meet a man that he met on Snapchat to live with him. Yeah, Snapchat, to live with him. He's going to go live with him. The only reason... He got caught because his GPS stopped working and he had to ask a cop for help. Man, can you imagine where that could go? And, you know, there's a deep, dark web and everything out there, guys. So um, you don't even know what happens on those things. So please tune in to protect your children, because I can tell you um, and we're going to talk about this a little bit next week with uh, a child commanding ten thousand dollars for to enter into, um, you know, this whole um child trafficking that they, they're paying ten thousand dollars per kid mm-hmm. it's going to be a huge problem when you got people like crackheads basically trying to um sell your kid mm-hmm. and i've seen it here in los um los angeles already where a child was almost snatched from um, a mcdonald's when their parents weren't paying attention but that was in, in real life but now we have them online trying to get your kids too so we want to make sure our kids are protected and that's not to scare you that's what's going on out in this world 
So make sure you tune in and you can get you can ask questions again on the chat and Facebook. And if your question gets picked, I'll ask it live for those who are listening via audio. I will make sure you know what the questions are as well. One more thing. Don't forget to follow us, too, on Twitter and Facebook at Black Parenting One and on Instagram at Black Parenting Magazine. Our website is SuccessfulBlackParenting.com and is full of good content to help you thrive and not just survive as a parent. Be sure to rate our podcast. And until next time, we'll talk soon. Kwahari, that's Swahili for goodbye. And I'll see you guys soon. Thanks for tuning in to Back Talk by Successful Black Parenting Magazine. We'll see you soon.